the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables making a whip of cords. He drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins for the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out here, out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, to you o Christ. Christ. <clears throat> From Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I don't preach from the Psalms so very often, which is actually somewhat strange because I grew up on them. In my growing up years, when, let us be clear, it was more than 50 years ago, and life had a different rhythm, and so our family not only ate supper together every single night, but when school was not in session, we also ate lunch together, all of us, every single day. And every single time, the, meal be the prayer began with my father had it saying a table prayer that I never actually did quite get all the words to, um, and no none of my siblings did either. We kind of talk about what exactly father was saying. For a time, I thought he was speaking in Dutch. He just was maybe a bit, a bit mumbling. At noontime, the devotions were the daily devotional sent out by our church. Um, but in the evening, most often anyway, my father would take the family Bible at the close of the meal and he would hand it to one of us five children and he would say, let's have a psalm. One thing I love about the psalms when I read them still is that every time when I read them, I read them in my heart anyway with my father and with the faith of my father. I think that I don't preach the Psalms so often because sometimes it seems to me they don't need me to, for they uh, preach quite well all by themselves. I mean, really, is there much of anything I can even add to the 23rd Psalm or the 46th Psalm or the 51st Psalm or the 103rd Psalm or the 121st Psalm or the 150th Psalm, just to name a few of Dad's favorites? And two, as I learned painfully, but powerfully when it came time for my dad, too young, uh, to die and to suffer mightily in doing so, um, and for me then to grieve a kind of grief that I had not been at all acquainted with before that. Is there anywhere in Scripture that is a better soulmate to grief's pain and grief's struggles than the oftentimes painfully honest lament psalms? which gave my heart and my mind and my soul permission to say things in prayer to God, not because they were pleasant or polite, 
but because they were true, like the time. I remember actually praying and feeling permission from the Lament Psalms to do this, praying and telling God, I am really pissed at you for allowing my father to die of that damn pancreatic cancer and to do so three months before Melissa was born. He couldn't even get a chance to welcome her to the world. The Lament Psalms taught me that God can handle it when the truth of where we are at the moment isn't pretty. But God also, and there's almost always this movement in the Lament Psalms, God also, when invited in to the not pretty with us by honest prayers, does have a way of not leaving us stuck there. Today's psalm, Psalm 19, another of Dad's favorites, and as it turns out, uh, one of my wife's favorites. I couldn't not preach this morning, not only because of the faith of my father and of my wife, but because you want to know why, not, why else? Because right from the beginning, when I read this at the beginning of this week, I could hear this psalm right off the bat just beautifully articulate, give words to a song that had been humming in my heart the whole previous week as I, with many of you, had read and then joined to discuss chapter 2 in Rob Bell's book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims its maker's handiwork. The psalm begins outside, with the psalmist reading creation, if you will, as though it were an open book, and what the psalmist sees and hears is that the book is about the greatness of God. Jim Lindbergh, one of my former professors at Luther Seminary, uh, has a commentary on this psalm and writes of a memory of his days as a freshman at Luther College when one beautiful fall Sunday evening the college community was invited to go outdoors for worship service atop a red and orange and yellow hued hill outside of Decorah with the Oneota River moving gracefully through the valley below. And he writes, this is paraphrased, the speaker for the evening was the college president. He said there were two books which told him most clearly about God and creation. The first book was the Bible, which used words to tell us about God and God's creation. But the second book, he said, was the book of creation itself, which through its own beauty and mystery never stops singing praises to God the Creator and inviting us to sing along. Psalm 19, 1-6, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims its maker's handiwork. Although they have no words or language and their voices are not heard, their sound has gone out into all lands and their message to the ends of the world where God has pitched a tent for the sun. The sun from, comes forth like a bridegroom out of his chamber. It rejoices like a champion to run its course. It goes forth from the uttermost edge of the heavens and runs about to the end of it again. And nothing is hidden from the sun's burning heat. Now notice the psalmist does not worship the sun. There were plenty of other religions of the day that were busy doing that. But not the psalmist. The psalmist worships the creator of the sun and does so using 
the vocabulary that is available to him, that being the vocabulary of the worldview of the science of his day. That science being clearly quite primitive. Its view being, and this is Jim Lindbergh paraphrased again, that the earth was flat. It was covered by a huge plexiglass-like dome that was called the firmament. And beneath the flat earth, there was water. And this was obvious because every time you dug down into it to make a well, what did you find? You found water. And above the dome, there was more water. That explains the blue skies. It's the blueness of water. And openings in the dome allowed the rain to pour through. And so when the great flood came, according to the scientific understanding of the author of Genesis 7, verse 11, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and all the windows of the heavens were opened for 40 days and nights. The psalmist uses the science of his day, including science in those days, understanding of the movements of the sun, science which it turns out, though cited in Scripture, did not prove to be either infallible or inerrant. But in doing so, the psalmist's heart felt lifted up with the sun into the infallibility of praise. Without getting into the weeds, for those of you who aren't reading Rob Bell's book, he too cites science, the science of our day, which too is not yet infallible or inerrant, for science at its very best knows one thing very much for sure, and that is that there is a whole lot that it doesn't know about the sun, about the universe, about our own bodies and souls, which, says Rob Bell, the more science does learn, including learning more and more things that science didn't even know that it didn't know, the more for him, the word miraculous is not erased or explained out of the script of creation, but rather written in even larger font all over creation. Rob Bell and the, scientists are, and the psalmist are not joined in their science. They are joined in their joy for the ways in which the ever-evolving work of scientists gives them new and ever-evolving depth with which to praise the mysteries and majesties of the God who, being God, can't and won't ever be by the likes of mere us fully known, and who thus can best be approached by us, not with complete understanding, but with completely unabandoned praise. Fred Craddock puts it this way, whose heart has not joined the psalmist and Rob Bell in this chorus of praise to the Creator? Who has not in spring, when the world is a poem of light and color, delighted in the meadows turning somersaults of joy and butterflies fluttering up from every little buttercup? Or in dry, hot summer, when clouds gather and heavy Clouds dark and heavy gather on the hill, soon thundering like a herd of buffalo across the valley, making glad the gardens and sending out the children to splash in the puddles. Or in the autumn, with leaves aflame, poised between summer and winter, warm enough but yet prophetic of snow. Or in the winter, when trees are now shivering naked and they beg heaven for a blanket and down it comes thick and white, turning even a garbage can into an altar 
in praise of God. There's no square inch of earth so barren that the observing eye cannot see in the lower right-hand corner the signature of the artist. As creation resounds in unending praise to the greatness of its creator. But then the psalm takes this turn, and it's really, I think, theologically kind of an exquisite one. As having considered the book of creation, especially the sun, God created, calling us to praise, enlightening our days, warming us with its rays, the psalmist turns seamlessly now to another book, that being the Torah, the law of the Lord, the sacred word of the Lord, which, says the psalmist, like the sun in the sky, but even more so, with words like, for example, the Ten Commandments, also enlightens our days and enlightens our eyes and enlivens our hearts and, like nothing else can, satisfies our souls. Psalm 19, 7 to 11, the teaching of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are just and rejoice the heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear and give light to the eyes. They are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, more than much fine gold, sweeter far than honey, than honey in the comb. By them also is your servant enlightened. And in keeping them there is great reward. The bright light of the sun in the sky, the psalmist says, shines with God-created light upon the God-created earth, calling us to praise as it does so. The bright light of God's Torah, God's laws, like the Ten Commandments, the psalmist adds, shine with more radiant shine than the finest gold there is to enlighten, to warm, to guide, to enliven our words, our deeds, our hearts, and in keeping them, the psalmist says, there is great reward. It's worth noting. The benefits of God's commandments, says the psalmist, belong not to the one who reads them, but to the one who follows them. Not to the one who recites them, but the one who keeps them. At which point the psalmist goes now to the only place he can go because the light of God's word shines so brightly he can't not see it. And in telling us now what it is that he now sees, enlightened by the light of God's word, the psalmist enlightens us too to the fact, and this is not true about every single author or every single psalm, but the psalmist enlightens us too. He reveals to us that he's a Lutheran. He does so by telling us something Martin Luther said as much or more than anything else he ever said, that being that God's commandments, God's laws, not only guide our ways, they also sniff out, find out, point out our sin. And Luther's oft-quoted repeat and repeated Latin phraseology, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. You shall not covet, for example, the law says, 
coveting being something the law finds me doing every time it tells me, not just in my deeds, but also in my heart. When, for example, rather than having spent the last bit of time giving thanks for what I do have, I've been pouting because I don't have one of those. And it's not fair. Other people get those. And you shall not commit adultery, the law says too, with Jesus adding that adultery is not just about doing the deed, but is also every bit as much about the lusts and desires and fantasies of the mind and of the heart and of the lingering gazes of the eye. And you shall have no other gods, no other anything, that comes before the Lord your God, the law says, that first of the commandments also being not just about my deeds, my deeds done and left undone, but also about what my deeds done and left undone and my thoughts and my heart too ultimately reveal about my ultimate priorities, some of which too often have very little to do with God. I could go on, but I think you get the point. The law guides, but it also accuses. It enlightens the path to walk, but it also enlightens the paths that I have walked. In thought, word, and deed, on paths traveled and left untraveled. The light of the law being that bright, Luther said, if you look into it truly and allow it to be the mirror it has given us truly to be, the law the Ten Commandments, for example, will never simply pat you on the back. They rather will, taken undiluted, move you to your knees, confessing, I am in bondage to sin, and I cannot free myself. And the psalmist, it turns out, was a Lutheran, even before there was a Luther. Lutherans being those who, if they know anything, Know that we will not stand righteous before God's righteousness by cleaning up our acts, thus to be the one God's judges as one of the good ones. No, no, heavens, no. We know, and the psalmist knows, that we will only stand righteous before the righteousness that is the righteousness of God. When we are cleansingly judged by the judge, to be sinners who are forgiven. Psalm 19, 12 to 14, who can even detect one's own offenses? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Above all, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be whole and sound and innocent of a great offense. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to your sight, O Lord, because you're the one who can make them so. For you are, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Do you hear where the, sin, the psalm ends? Not in sin. It ends where it started, in praise. Praise that I hear as the psalmist's most profound praise of all. For it is only from our knees, knowing the depths of our sin, including knowing how much about our sin we don't even know, that we can at last praise God for the unknowingly unfathomable depth of God's 
mercy. Which were the psalmist a later day Lutheran might have led him to conclude more to be desired than gold, more than much fine gold, sweeter far than honey, than honey in the comb, is the cross of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For, to put it another way, when we know the truth of the depth of our own sin, we can then, with joy and praise, know at last, too, the depth of the truth of the gospel. Amen.